Ted Kaczynski was a genius, but instead of using his doctorate in mathematics to help make the world a better place, he made bombs. Frustrated with the Industrial Revolution happening in America, Ted decided to live his life off the radar, in the middle of nowhere, in his hand-built cabin. But even that wasn't enough to curb his ever-growing frustration with the advancements in technology. So to solve that problem, he decided to attack. I'm Mike. I'm Ian. And I'm Dave. If you thought your gas station sushi diarrhea was explosive, stick around. Tonight's episode is going to be a blast. This is Necronomapod. Our other major story tonight, a break in the Unabomber case. FBI agents are searching the Montana cabin of former mathematics professor Ted Kaczynski. Just moments ago, we received these pictures of the suspect in custody, sitting in the back of a white truck. He lives like a hermit near the town of Lincoln. He is in custody, but he has not been charged. Jay Dapper is live in the newsroom with the very latest. Jay. Well, Roz, at this point, the FBI has yet to uncover a smoking gun, any bomb parts or something like that, for example, that might conclusively link this 53-year-old recluse from Montana to the 18-year reign of terror caused by the Unabomber. He is not under arrest. Not yet. So, Dave. Yes, sir. Lazarus is a character from one of your all-time favorite books. The Bible. Can you give us a little background on Lazarus, Lazarus, please? Uh, it's the fellow that uh, Jesus raised from the dead. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So tying that into today now. I mean, I, be, I believe it's a bit apocryphal, but, you know. Well, but, I mean, the Bible said he did it, so I think he Okay, did it. well, then it must be. Yeah, I don't, who, who are we to question the <laughs> I Bible? I agree. Have you ever heard of Lazarus Syndrome? I have not. Ian, have you heard of Lazarus Syndrome? I have not. The technical definition, Lazarus syndrome, also known as auto-resuscitation after failed cardiopulmonary resuscitation, is the spontaneous return of a normal cardiac rhythm after failed attempts at resuscitation. It's essentially when you flatline and when you die, and then you, mm. you randomly come back from the dead after all medical did not work. How much time has elapsed before the death uh, time has been called and this miracle takes place? Well, it depends on how you look at it. Hmm. Um, but it has occurred 38 times in the United States since 1982. Interesting. Yes. Like, are we talking minutes? Are we talking as persons being rolled into the crematorium? Well, like it depends on what you look at, Dave. <laughs> I You're being a... very vague here, Mike. No, I'm, no, I'm... no. I have a story here. <laughs> we were asked by one of our listeners if we could cover, uh, shout out to a longtime listener, Glasshopper So Groovy, if we could cover people who have flatlined and the, the longest that they, has, that they have went before recovering. Interesting. So I did some research on my own. Wow. Look at that. Oh, Amazing. The record in May of 2008, after no brainwaves... For 17 hours. Wow. Kept alive on life support. Then the life support was pulled. Okay. 10 minutes later, the lady woke up. Hmm. Like a jolt to the system kind of thing. So here's the article, and I'll, I'll just go through it briefly from ABC News in 2008. Velma Thomas's heart stopped beating three times, and her doctors thought she was dead. She was taken by ambulance to a local West Virginia hospital when her heart stopped after experiencing symptoms from a heart attack. 
For more than 17 hours, Thomas had no measurable brain waves, according to her doctors. They tried to save her life multiple times, including inducing hypothermia in an attempt to stimulate oh, the brain. Sure. Her family said their goodbyes. They had her on life support. They all said their, their, their goodbyes. There was no sign of neurological function, and they went about planning her funeral. Wow. Her son said her skin had already started hardening, and her hands and toes were curling up. Interesting. She was a, dead. They made the dis- difficult decision to take her off life support, pull the plug. She was 59 years old. Ten minutes after medical uh, staff stopped the respirator and nurses removed her tubing, Velma moved her arm, which they thought initially was reflexes. Right. Nurses hurried to call their son. They told him his mother was moving, and she now had a heart rate. She moved her arm, then her foot, then she coughed, then she moved her eyes, then amazingly, she began to speak. In Chinese? She asked where her son was, who was on his way rushing back to the the, the doctor's office because they had just, you know, pulled the plug and she was dead. Um, She was an organ donor, and they delayed taking her off the ventilator uh, because of that, I think to, maybe to, to save the organs as sure, best they can. Sure. And that might have been what ended up saving her life. It's an amazing story. Yeah. Do we think the hand of Jesus reached down from the, <laughs> the heavens and resuscitated? Is that why it's called the Lazarus? Well, that's that. that it's called Lazarus syndrome is sure. when you come back. She was interviewed for this article. And when they asked how she was feeling, she goes, I'm feeling wonderful compared to the way I was feeling a few days ago. Hmm. So anyways, 17 hours, she was, she was dead, kept on life support, though. Is it possible that there was no brainwaves because it was someone in West Virginia and it just... Goddamn. That hell. was their normal brainwave pattern. I don't know. <laughs> I joke. I kid. I love West Virginia. Wow. I, I have no uh, reasonable explanation for that. God, Dave. God. I, that is not a reasonable explanation, no. I'm happy for her. the family. Fantastic. The family let go and they let God. Did they not? Is that what happened? They prayed. I like how you know <laughs> you're in a hospital having emergency, you know, quadruple bypass. The doctors work on you for 20 hours straight, and they're like, "Oh, thank God!" Jesus gets the praise. Not that that's fucking surgeons. <laughs> that doctor's like, "Well, straight. suck my dick. Yeah, what the right. fuck?" <laughs> we prayed all night. Thank, thank you, Jesus. Oh, okay. <laughs> For the record, I wasn't being sexist. I like to think even a female doctor would be like, well, suck my dick. What the fuck? Of course. <laughs> female doctors are better, for the record. Females are better at everything. Just my opinion. Anyway, so. Also, I want Lazarus that- Effect. Great Olivia Wilde movie. Okay, go check it out. I'm but kidding. don't check I'm it- kidding. It's not that great. Oh, well, don't check it out too much because we don't want her to win an Academy Award. <laughs> oh, she has the curse, the necro curse. She can't win anything. Until she gives each one of us a blumpkin or appears on the show. She has to call into the show. Ian, we got the Unabomber today. Tell us about him. Ted Kaczynski was born on May 22nd, 1942 in Chicago, Illinois, to Wanda Teresa and Ted Richard Kaczynski Sr. Ted had a younger brother named David, and his parents told David that Ted had been a happy baby until severe hives forced him into hospital isolation with limited contact with others, after which he, quote, showed little emotion for months. Didn't that happen with uh, Dahmer, the medical trauma at the early age? Gacy had some issues with that. And yes, Dahmer did too. Have a, Get, like a hernia. A hernia at age yeah. four, yeah. Right. And yeah. they said Fuckers he couldn't came ask out that of trivia. That. Yeah, yeah. All right. Pattern. So, pattern alert. Pattern alert. I spoke over Ian. Say that last thing you said again. They said when he came out of that hernia surgery, his yeah. dad said he was never the same after that. There you go. Pattern alert. 
Wanda recalled Ted recoiling from a picture of himself as an infant being held down by physicians examining his hives. She said he showed sympathy to animals who were in cages or otherwise helpless, which she speculated stemmed from his experience in hospital isolation. That's deep. She kind of treats him like like um like bubble boy kind of thing, like mm. yeah, I think and we'll, sheltered we, him from everything right. kind of deal. Which is good for nobody. Yeah, no. From first to fourth grade, Ted attended Sherman Elementary School in Chicago, where administrators described him as, quote, healthy and well-adjusted. In 1952, 10 years after Ted was born, the family moved to southwest suburban Evergreen Park, Illinois. Ted transferred to Evergreen Park Central Junior High School. After testing his IQ at 167, he skipped the sixth grade. Ted later described this as a turning point in his childhood. Previously, he had socialized with his peers and was even considered a leader, but after skipping ahead, he felt he did not fit in with the older kids and was bullied. That seems kind of natural. Like, Yeah, I think that'd be, be traumatic, right? Yeah. Leave all your friends, go with the older kids. Of course yeah. they're going to bully you. And the older you. kids are going to treat you. Yeah, because one, like, quote, you're a nerd because you're so smart. Sure. And then you're younger, you're smaller. I mean, this is a big developmental age, so you're Great. smaller than them. It's tough. I'd imagine he got stuffed in a few lockers. I- I'm sure he did. Not that I would know anything about, you know, I was stuffing people in lockers. Sure, sure you were. (laughs) That's code for having sex, right? I mean, I was stuffing lockers. Yeah. (laughs) When you were 25, maybe. (laughs) 35. (laughs) (laughs) Neighbors in Evergreen Park later described the Kaczynski family as, quote, civic minded folks, with one stating the parents, quote, sacrificed everything they had for their children. Both Ted and David were intelligent, but Ted stuck out in particular. One neighbor said she had, quote, never known anyone who had a brain like he did, while another said that Ted was, quote, strictly a loner who didn't play, an old man before his time. I I think when you're a kid like that and you're super smart and sometimes you don't want to hang around with those other dumb fucking kids because they're dumb. (laughs) They're dumb. Like everyone's dumb (laughs) compared to you. Right. I get that. (laughs) He still gets that. (laughs) Like, hey, yeah, I mean, look, look at my comic books. It's like, dude, I'm doing fucking, you know, advanced calculus jack off. Yeah, I mean, at sixth grade, he's considered a genius. Yeah, right. So people annoy you. I, that makes complete sense. His mother recalled Ted as a shy child who became unresponsive if pressured into a social situation. At one point, she was so worried about Ted's social development that she considered entering him into a study for autistic children led by a guy named Bruno Bethelheim. She decided to go against this after observing Bethlehem's just really like abrupt and cold approach to the study. Like from what I read, he didn't view these autistic kids as people, more just like subjects. And that was it. Probably not a good way to go about your research. Like a scientific versus a loving angle. Yeah. 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 Also, that was my porn name, Bruno Bethlehem back in the, back in the <laughs> early 90s. <laughs> Look him up. He's on Pornhub, folks. (laughs) Ted attended Evergreen Park Community High School, where he excelled academically. He played the trombone in the marching band and was a member of the mathematics, biology, coin, and German clubs, but was regarded as an outsider by his classmates. What are you doing in the coin club? Collect coins. Just a coin collection kind of thing? You share them? I mean, I would imagine. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Maybe like read up on like the years they were made or something. That's cool. I like that. That's neat. 
1996, a former classmate said, quote, he was never really seen as a person, as an individual personality. He was always regarded as a walking brain, so to speak. During this period, Kaczynski became intensely interested in mathematics, spending hours studying and solving advanced problems. He became associated with a group of like-minded boys interested in science and mathematics, known as the, quote, briefcase boys, because they were always carrying around briefcases. Not to be uh, confused with the Van Buren gang <laughs> from <laughs> Seinfeld. You think the briefcase boys probably got laid a lot in high school? I feel like they uh, sang, no. sang doo-wop, <laughs> you know, barbershop songs. <laughs> One member of this group recalled Ted as, quote, the smartest kid in the class, just quiet and shy until you got to know him. Once he knew you, he could talk and talk. Side note, uh, I was deathly shy until I got to college. Yeah. Like to the point where teachers used to think I had a speech impediment because I was so afraid to speak in class. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Like when called on in class, I would sit there and I would just not talk because I was so terrified of talking. I in front don't really of enjoy talking in front of groups. It's not my favorite yeah. thing. I'm kind of not looking forward to if we ever... Make the jump to live shows. We're never going to do live shows. I would even talk about that. <laughs> Nobody wants to see us do a live show. I'm pandering for praise. Like, please give us live shows. I would have to kind of get that perfect balance of drinking enough to relieve my anxiety and not but also drinking too much yourself. where I don't say stuff that I can't pull back into my mouth once I got it you. leaves. We'll have a seven second delay. No problem. <laughs> Everyone's got to wear headphones. And then the microphone's a seven seconds away. Yeah. All right. All right. That's all technology's good. come a long way. That's fantastic. Yeah. I don't like meeting new people at all. So well. all right. It's so no live shows. No live shows ever. <laughs> it's not my favorite. Become thing. a patron, yeah. join us for a happy hour one day. That's why a lot of times people think I'm an asshole when they first meet me, but I'm not. I just Well Well, you know. Or you, there's, <laughs> there's you're two sides. A cookie, then you're a real asshole. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's two sides. If you meet me sober, I'm very quiet. Sure. And chances are you meet me as an asshole or think I'm an asshole. If I'm drunk, well, it's off the rails then. <laughs> well, <laughs> if, no filter. And if they meet you drunk while you're watching UFC, you're a real big asshole because if they're not <laughs> cheering for who you're cheering for, you fucking hate them. Yep. <laughs> Shout out to uh, Stipe Miocic, Cleveland's own, winning the feud with Daniel Cormier last weekend. I know Ian wasn't too ups uh, excited about that. Fortunately, mm -hmm. we did not watch it together, so he didn't have to, you know, fight Dave over a cookie or anything. <laughs> but <laughs> he's, he's crying in his beer by himself at home. Well, I also want it to be known that Stipe has an open invite anytime he wants to come and sit in with us in studio. Baddest man in the world. Yeah, he can come sit with us in studio any day. Beers on us, and we'll even buy him. What is, what is he? Modelo. Modelo. We'll Modelo. buy him all the Modelo he can drink. Cleveland strong. <laughs> <laughs> So throughout high school, Ted was ahead of his classmates academically. He's placed in more advanced mathematics classes. He soon mastered that material. He skipped 11th grade, and by attending summer school, he graduated at the age of 15. He was one of his school's five national merit finalists and was encouraged to apply to Harvard College. And when we're talking like mathematics stuff with him, we're not talking solving problems anymore. Once he's gotten to this point, we're talking about like theory. Sure, sure. Abstract and stuff, stuff that's, yeah, know, just like yeah. stuff that n no average person would ever understand. Sure. You know what I mean? This way, way, really, way off the rails. Yeah. Yeah. Or problems that are 300 years old as no one has ever been able to solve. <laughs> right. 
he entered Harvard on a scholarship in 1958 at the age of 16. A classmate later said that Ted was emotionally unprepared, saying, quote, they packed him up and sent him to Harvard before he was ready. He didn't even have a driver's license. And that culture shock will fuck you up, right? It's, it has to. I, I was a, I guess, relatively well-adjusted individual at this age with a driver's license. Going to college is a culture shock. Sure. Like, it's just, it's a different environment. Well, when you're 15 or yeah, 16. And so let alone when you're yeah, 15. Sure. And you're you're smart, but you're not socially adjusted, yeah. and you don't have a, a driver's license. You don't you don't need a driver's license to go to college. But I know he's just putting it in perspective of how you know how young this kid is. Yeah. So I couldn't imagine as I was 18 and went to college, and it was a culture shock. Let alone 15. Sure. And being this kid, it's tough. I'm and then sure you feel does. like you probably have the weight of the world on your shoulders because now you're expected to perform and yeah. you know and I'm, get all these good grades. And well, people have been telling me he's a genius for years. Right. Yeah. The weight of that. Sure. During his first year at Harvard, Ted lived at 8 Prescott Street, which was designed to accommodate the youngest freshman in a small, intimate living space. For the next three years, he lived at Elliott House. One of his sweetmates there recalled that he avoided contact with others and would, quote, just rush through the suite, go into his room, and slam the door. Did those, those young prodigies, did they get any extra supervision or anything? I don't know. I wonder. I mean, you got to protect them from the the Mike Frat Boys of the world, right? <laughs> well, it wasn't. I don't think those guys needed protected. It was. You know, oh, I'm sure there were girls, girls out there, that, female prodigies too. Hey, did you roof any female 16 year old prodigies I, at college, Mike? First of all, I would <laughs> never do that with an underage individual. It's entrapment, Pally. Second, I'm not interested in no fucking nerds. Dude, I'm not interested no. in no fucking nerds. <laughs> I tried to say that as douchey as I could. You can take your smarts and you can get the fuck out of here. You may have your smarts, but you ain't got this dick. <laughs> Moving on. Ooh, Moving boy. on quickly. Oh, boy. You accuse me of sleeping with 16 years. I asked. I didn't accuse anything. Stop it, pal. Another person said Ted was reserved, but regarded him as a genius. Quote, it's just an opinion, but Ted was brilliant. Other students stated Ted wasn't socially awkward, as people implied. An Elliott House resident who went to dinner with Ted at times called him, quote, very quiet but personable. He would enter into discussions, maybe a little less so than most, but he was certainly friendly. And I, I tend to believe that, that he maybe needed the extra emphasis from the, the other person to make the initial communication, and then once he got friendly with you yeah. and warmed up, I don't go out of my way to talking. talk to people, sure. right? And as someone like I said, I used to be really shy. Once I got to like know you and trust you and feel comfortable, I would start talking, mm -hmm. and I feel like that's maybe what he was. Sure. He was like, again, being with people who are much older than him. Yeah, absolutely. Ted earned his bachelor's of arts degree in mathematics from Harvard in 1962. He finished with a 3.12 GPA, but he had ex been expected to perform better. Yeah, he's a fucking genius, 3.12. The fuck out of here. It's less than pi. That's not even pi, bro. I would have given both of my testicles for a 3.12 in college. I would have given would have both have my given testicles for, for a 2.12 in college. I would have given yeah, that for in fucking high school, man. Yeah. I graduated high school by the skin of my fucking teeth, man. <laughs> <laughs> As a sophomore at Harvard, Ted participated in a study described by author Alston Chase as a, quote, purposely brutalizing psychological experiment led by Harvard psychologist Henry Murray. 
So this is an interesting story here. Was his involvement strictly financial? Like, is that why he Had was doing it? Ted? Yeah. From what I read, the Harvard students that participated in this, it was billed to them as like a social thing that would help them excel in school. So they got credit for it. I believe so. Okay. Well, that makes sense. It, or maybe it, he was just was, more eager. He was eager to learn. So he wanted to be a part of yeah. the experiment. Well, I, I, I find this interesting. I'm just curious of what his motivation he was. He also to, was just not social. So he had people reaching out to him. Maybe he was yeah. just like, you don't want to yeah. displease anyone. So you just agree to anything. Yeah. And it, 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 it was more, it was like the social thing, but it was also like, okay, you are one of the smartest people here. We want to pick your brain and have you write these essays and stuff. So they flattered, you know? they flattered him. Stroke some ego. Right, sure. exactly. Okay, very good. So getting into Henry Murray real quick. He was the director of the Harvard Psychological Clinic in the School of Arts and Sciences. Murray developed a theory of personality called personology based on, quote, need and press. From 1959 to 1962, he conducted a series of psychologically damaging experiments on undergraduate students, which researchers have attempted to link them to the CIA's mind control experiment, MKUltra. Do we need a little refresher on what MKUltra is here? No, go back and listen to the archives, motherfuckers. Okay. Moving on. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, refresh our memory. Well, like you said, it's back in the archives, but MKUltra was the CIA's mind control uh, program where they would use LSD, um, psychological things like what we're about to get into that didn't involve drugs to see the effect on people. And a lot of it was for uh, interrogation techniques, but then there's also a really weird dark side to it with where there's evidence that they were trying to create like a Manchurian candidate, like somebody that could do something, like create a split personality in a person where you could trigger that and they wouldn't know what they were doing. They just went on their mission. Yeah. So in a word or in a sentence, still not as bad as unit 731. Well, that's, <laughs> I don't know. They're, I guess that's, that's tough to debate. To I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, you're talking one aspect of everything that happened in unit 731. Yeah. Well, it was the Cold War. It was a different time. It was... Uh, <laughs> and there was murder. There was rape. It's a there different was world, man. emotional and psychological distress. Just saying. <laughs> in, in, in perspective, MKUltra, not as bad. No, Unit 731 is one of the worst things I've ever read. Well, I think it was pretty much unanimous. It's the worst thing we've ever covered. To compare the two, go back into our archives and listen to Unit 731 and MKUltra. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot to the MK Ultra thing. I mean, you know, that stemmed off from, you know, there was projects before that, like Project Artichoke. Uh, I believe the other one was Bluebird, that, and then it became MK Ultra, and then there were sub projects of MK Ultra, like Midnight Climax and other ones. Like this, this was a <laughs> web of, <laughs> this is a web of shit, you know, with MK Ultra. Yeah. So there's no concrete proof that Murray was a part of MK Ultra or even knew that he was. A common tactic of the CIA regarding MKUltra experiments in colleges was to set up these shell organizations to offer grants to professors to conduct experiments. Sometimes professors were told after a while of doing these experiments that they were really participating in MKUltra, and other times they were never told. I mean, it makes sense. It's the easy, You have a, a, a built-in subject pool. It's the easiest place to start doing this kind of stuff. Yeah. 
Well, and in this time, like professors being told they were really participating in MKUltra, did they even know what that meant? Like the, they didn't know the necessarily so what they were yeah. like, a, you know, and participating in. They might've just thought, okay, this is just a sure. government experiment. They didn't know the, you know, the, the, the torture that was going sure. on. I tell you what, what a, I, what a great time to be alive and working for the CIA in the 50s and the 60s. The fucking shit you could have done. Ooh. Dave, we'll save this for our uh, spinoff on the election of 1960, but we can talk about the CIA and all the various ways they tried to kill Castro Absolutely. back in the day. Because there were some hilarious uh, and uh, not scientific ways that they went to go about trying to Just kill like, Castro. Hey, let's try this. And all failed. <laughs> Coming to a podcast platform near you. Probably 2021, right? 2022. Give us some fucking time. Yeah, you're right. It's <laughs> a lot of research. As we said in our MK Ultra episode, when word of the project started coming out, the CIA started to destroy tons of the records. There's not really too, too much left over from MK Ultra. With everything being destroyed, the level of involvement from the higher-ups at Harvard, it's not clear how much they knew about the project. It's not clear if the CIA infiltrated Harvard without anybody knowing or if... If Harvard was just like all in on it, and and we don't know. It's not clear. But what is known from Freedom of Information Act requests in 1977 is that the CIA funneled over $400,000 from shell organizations into Harvard for MKUltra experiments. Well, there you go. Very interesting. Regarding the experiment Ted was subjected to, subjects were told they would be debating personal philosophy with a fellow student and were asked to write essays detailing their personal beliefs and aspirations. The essays were turned over to an anonymous attorney who in a later session would confront and belittle the subject, making, quote, vehement, sweeping, and personally abusive attacks using the content of the essays as ammunition while electrodes monitored the su- the subject's psychological reactions. Can we try this? Mike, write an essay. I want to fucking belittle your essay okay. on air next week. The t- title, My Dick is So Huge. <laughs> <laughs> then we're just going to fucking shit on you for like two hours. <laughs> so they call that a Cleveland steamer, right? If you're going to shit yeah, on right. me. Well, or with a table, it's a Pittsburgh platter, sure. <laughs> So these encounters were filmed, and the subjects' expressions of anger and rage were later played back to them repeatedly. They would just have to sit there, forced to sit there and watch. You are watching yourself be completely broken down, and you just have to watch that on video over and over again. It's a complete breakdown of ego. This is exactly why I do not listen to our podcast <laughs> because it is an absolute <laughs> breakdown of my ego when I listen to this show back. What I'm saying now makes sense to me. Sure. When I'm listening on like Monday driving to work, I'm like, you fucking idiot. Sure. Why do you represent yourself that way? This is not at all what you're like. So I get it. I get it. I'm in touch with that emotion. Okay. Well, any hoodles. I'm just saying that, that makes me a little sad, but okay. <laughs> Makes me really sad. (laughs) The experiment lasted three years with someone verbally abusing and humiliating Ted each week. And Ted spent 200 hours as a part of the study. Jesus Christ. Sounds awful. It's a complete breakdown of you. Yeah. Of of your ego. Yeah. There's there's lasting effects with that, for sure. What's really crazy is as we go through this story, his involvement in MKUltra kind of makes sense, I think. I'm jumping ahead, but goddamn. 
They could flip the switch. It really, like, he was a smart dude. Yeah. And he could have put it to, to use on anything. Sure. And this is the path he chose. And not just smart, like, smarter than smart, most like people. Genius. He's a genius. Yeah. Yeah. Like, things that most people in this country would never be able to understand smart. Right. right. Like, like I mean, the, people not understanding why Nickelback is good. Like, that <laughs> level, that <laughs> level of intelligence he achieved at, like, 16 all of you listeners probably don't achieve that because you don't understand how good Nickelback is. <laughs> Some of you do. I mean, there's a quote we're going to read here in a little bit where he writes a dissertation on you know mathematical theory and things like that. And they said only 10 to 12 people in the world might understand what he wrote. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's at a level most people don't even understand what that means. So, yeah. 99.9% right. of sure. this population, yeah. And, you know, fun fact about Henry Murray and that whole study at Harvard, when it came out, what Ted was responsible for, all that, all those files from Henry Murray and his thing, Harvard just locked that up real quick. Oh, weird, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm. In 1962, Ted enrolled at the University of Michigan, where he earned his master's and doctoral degrees in mathematics in 1964 and 1967. Michigan was not his first choice for postgraduate education. He also applied to the University of California, Berkeley, and the University of Chicago, both which accepted him but offered him no teaching position or financial aid. Michigan offered him an annual grant of $2,310, which is equivalent to $19,343 today, and a teaching job. That ain't bad at all. Was he involved with the football team at all? Because they bomb every year. Damn. <laughs> Michigan, am I right? Wow. They suck, right? <laughs> <laughs> we are an Ohio podcast. Folks. OH. Ohio. Oh, I heard that echo through Ian's uh, <laughs> setup. I don't even watch college sports, but I get it. There's a hatred there. <laughs> At Michigan, Ted earned five B's and 12 A's in his 18 courses. However, in 2006, he said, quote, his memories of the University of Michigan are not pleasant. The fact that I not only passed my courses, except one physics course, but got quite a few A's shows how wretchedly low the standards were at Michigan. <laughs> better than Mike's freshman grades, right? Am I right? Oh, that's <laughs> very much better than for a period in 1966, Ted experienced intense sexual fantasies of being a female and decided to undergo gender transition. He arranged to meet with a psychiatrist but changed his mind in the waiting room and did not disclose his reason for making the appointment. Afterwards, enraged, he considered killing the psychiatrist and other people he hated. Ted described this episode as, quote, a major turning point in his life. Hmm. Projecting the anger on the shrink. It's interesting. In 1967, Ted's dissertation, Boundary Functions, won the Sumner B. Myers Prize for Michigan's Best Mathematics Dissertation of the Year. Maxwell Reed, a member of his dissertation committee, said, quote, I would guess that maybe 10 or 12 men in the country understood or appreciated it. Ted published two journal articles related to his dissertation and three more after leaving Michigan. In late 1967 at 25, Ted became the youngest assistant professor of mathematics in the history of the University of California, Berkeley, up to that time, where he taught undergraduate courses in geometry and calculus. His teaching evaluations suggested he was not well-liked by his students. Stop it. He seems so pleasant. <laughs> I don't believe it. 
he seemed uncomfortable teaching, taught straight from the textbook, and refused to answer questions. Without any explanation, Ted resigned on June 30, 1969. At the time, the chairman of the mathematics department, J.W. Addison, called this a, quote, sudden and unexpected resignation. Is it true he blew his lessons way out of proportion? He blew them away. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of bomb humor tonight, folks. I was going to say, he never <laughs> bombed an exam. <laughs> <laughs> After resigning from Berkeley, Ted moved to his parents' house in Lombard, Illinois. Then, two years later, in 1971, to a remote cabin he had built outside Lincoln, Montana, where he could live a simple life with little money and without electricity or running water, working odd jobs and receiving some financial support from his family. Well, you guys are thinking about doing that, right? Just living off the land? You guys are kind of like burly outdoorsman types? So... Very much so. I wasn't going to brag about it. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, I'm, like, I'm opening the door for you. Though. I am really good at breaking like a branch off a tree and like using that to like hit things with. <laughs> I'm also really good at finding places to pee outside, especially when inebriated. Like in the alley next to the brewery, for example. Doesn't matter. You put me outside, I'll find a, a safe place to piss. <laughs> um, I, I'm good at like looking up at the stars. Sure. Love sure. that. I can find the moon when it's really bright <laughs> and uh, I can smell like when a skunk's around or it has been killed. You'll go the other way. Of course. Well, yeah. Well, you don't eat roadkill, Dave. That's lesson number one. You don't eat the roadkill because it's, it's, you know, it's oh, tampered. It's poison. Um, you put me in a cabin and I will be able to find the can of tuna fish that's put away and I'll feed you. <laughs> no problem. No problem. I, I went hunting at a primitive cabin like that one time. And the first time we had to go out in the, in the outhouse, I'm like, oh, my God, I, can't, I can't do this. I Did gotta, you also I, enjoy? I, I got to go home and take a shower. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't do that. There's no shower. You're like, also, you, what you, did you do when you had to wake up at 4 a.m. to go fucking hunt? Uh, it was, like, it's so dark. It was it's rough. It's cold. Like get a shit outside in the outhouse. And you're like, There's outside. no shower. You got to wash up. I'm like, I don't want to wash up. I want a hot shower. shower. <laughs> I can't Wash do this. up is the worst term in the history oh, yeah. you of just wash the up. modern no, language. I don't want to wash. wash up. No, I don't want to wash up. I need to bathe, <laughs> motherfucker. I want to clean myself. That's oh, horrible. <laughs> I cannot sleep if my hair is even the slightest bit greasy. Oh. I, get it, I know man. that makes me sound like a fucking diva. I don't give a shit. I don't I get it. I need to wash my hair every 24 hours at least. At least? Sometimes 12? Yeah. I and with the amount three of, times a day. With the sometimes. amount of fucking body hair I have, I got to clean all of that. So just to feel fresh and not greasy. <laughs> but it is it is what it is. Like, goddamn. I am not built for the outdoors. No. I, uh, nor am I. We know Ian's not built for any outdoors outside of his home. <laughs> He speedway. Can, he can't even go out and get the mail. <laughs> he goes speedway and back. <laughs> That's, he doesn't even know how to talk. He says speedway. Speedway. We gotta take him to speedway. It's just that time time of the week. He's gotta go to speedway. <laughs> My level of nature is going to speedway at two AM in the morning. And I and I park in front of the dumpster and there's just raccoons everywhere. That's my animals that I see. And you bond with them probably because you're the only fucking people out at two thirty in the morning. Yep. Every time I go there, raccoons everywhere. <laughs> Why the fuck you park in front of the dumpster, man? Park in front of the door. It's right there. Yeah, what the fuck? Are you I, I park about? in front of the dumpster so I can see all the raccoons. Oh, he like he enjoys that. He enjoys that part. <laughs> he parks in front of the the door. People are gonna look at him, Dave. He can't be seen. It's true. He's undercover. 
last time I went there, there was there was a raccoon popped out the side of it with a holding a half piece of pizza <laughs> eating it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was just me <laughs> eating my junk food late night. So Ted's original goal was to become self-sufficient so he could live anonymously. He taught himself survival skills such as tracking game, edible plant identification, organic farming, bow drilling, and other primitive technologies. He used a bicycle to get to town, and a volunteer at the library said he visited frequently to read classic works in their original languages. Other Lincoln residents said later that such a lifestyle was not unusual in the area. Ted decided it was impossible to live peacefully in nature because of the destruction of the woods around his cabin by real estate development and industrial projects. In response, he began performing acts of sabotage against nearby developments in 1975 and dedicated himself to reading about sociology and political philosophy. What kind of sabotage? Like peeing in there or burning it down? I think he was fucking with like the construction mm, equipment, like yeah. the vehicles and stuff. We will burn Utica to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> In an interview after his arrest, he recalled being shocked on a hike to one of his favorite wild spots, saying, quote, It's kind of rolling country, not flat. And when you get to the edge of it, you find these ravines that cut very steeply into cliff-like drop-offs and there was even a waterfall there. It was about two days' hike from my cabin. That was the best spot until the summer of 1983. That summer, there were too many people around my cabin, so I decided I needed some peace. I went back to the plateau, and when I got there, I found they had put a road right through the middle of it. You just can't imagine how upset I was. It was from that point on, I decided rather than trying to acquire further wilderness skills, I would work on getting back at the system. Revenge. Revenge. And their fate was sealed right then and there. What's the uh, NCIS? The is it the song? The the Who song? Yeah. That's Law and Order, dude. I know. I'm just doing all of them. Oh, you're combining them all. No, the best was Caruso. With the, he takes his glasses off and this looks like something. And then, this looks like something for revenge. This is great. Okay. See you next week. That was a prop. We'll see you later. In that 1999 interview, he described his loss of faith in the potential for reform. He decided that the, quote, human tendency to take the path of least resistance meant that violent collapse was the only way to bring down the industrial technological system. Goddamn right. Says, quote, they'll take the easy way out and giving up your car, your television set, your electricity is not the path of least resistance for most people. As I see it, I don't think there is any controlled or planned way in which we can dismantle the industrial system. I think that the only way we will get rid of it is if it breaks down and collapses. The big problem is that people don't believe a revolution is possible, and it is not possible, precisely because they do not believe it is possible. To a large extent, I think the eco-anarchist movement is accomplishing a great deal, but I think they could do better. The real revolutionaries should separate themselves from the reformers 
I think it would be good if conscious effort was being made to get as many people as possible introduced to the wilderness. In a general way, I think what has to be done is not to try and convince or persuade the majority of people that we are right as much as try to increase tensions in society to the point where things start to break down, to create a situation where people get uncomfortable enough that they're going to start to rebel. So the question is, how do you increase those tensions? Oh, okay. That made sense. <laughs> that one sentence was something else. That is all <laughs> over the place. <laughs> so we've been talking about this fucking guy for an hour. We haven't talked about one fucking bomb. He's ramping up, bro. Just saying. Calm down. Here for the shit show. Get there. Here for the shit show. Not to hear the life story of some fucking genius. <laughs> if I wanted that, I'd just read my own book. Oh, boy. See, that's one of those things on Monday. I'm going to be like, Mike, why the fuck did you? Why would you say something like that? That's stupid. Ted's first mail bomb was directed at Buckley Christ, a professor of material engineering at Northwestern University. On May 25th, 1978, a package with Christ's return address was found in a parking lot at the University of Illinois, Chicago. The package was returned to Christ, who became suspicious because he had not sent the package, so he contacted campus police. Officer Terry Marker opened the package, which exploded and injured his left hand. So why this guy? That's the thing with Ted Kaczynski is that's... He's all over the place, right? He's pushing back against what he thinks is the things that are wrong with society, I guess, you know, but there's no rhyme or reason to a specific person. So do we think his reasoning was so advanced that we couldn't figure it out? Or do we think his so his reasoning was so just diluted and MK ultra that he doesn't even know? That's a combination of both, I think. You think so? I don't know. I th- I mean, I'm just wondering, like, did we catch up to why he targeted certain people? Or does, is he just so fucked in the mind that he's just picking people out of, like, you know, just randomly seeing people's names and what they're attached to and saying, I'm going to attack you? Yeah, I, I think it's something to discuss at the end and how to, okay. if there's a pattern. I can take a hint. No, I, I, I just don't, <laughs> I, I don't know that I know that answer. I don't know if we'll ever know that answer, but I think it's worth a discussion at the end of the story to how all these people fit into his plan. Right. Ted had returned to Illinois for the May 1978 bombing and stayed there for a time to work with his father and brother at a foam rubber factory. However, in August 1978, he was fired by his brother for writing insulting things about a female supervisor who he had briefly dated. So I did a little more research on this, Uh on this specific thing here, and he was actually writing limericks about this woman and posting them around the shop. Oh, God damn. <laughs> so I didn't tell you guys, but I took a trip to Chicago this week and I met with the HR person at this company and they, they had in his HR file, uh, they had these limericks that he posted. And they so just happened they to give still you, had them. They, they gave they, you access to his HR file. They gave me a copy of it. Wow. So if you guys don't mind, I'd, I'm going to read some of the lyrics that Ted wrote or some of the limericks yeah, sure. that Ted wrote. Here. The floor is yours. <laughs> sure. So here we go. There once was this slut at my job. Who made my wiener start to throb. (laughs) She said she would pass on me eating her ass, so I went home and cranked my own knob. That's poetry. There's a couple of them. Ted was really off the rails. Let's go. Dig in. All right, here's the next one. There once was a girl at my employer who would not allow me to enjoy her. She was such a huge slut, but did not want my nut 
So I'm writing this just to annoy her. I mean, this guy was out of his mind with these limericks. He loved them. He loved these girls. There's more. You guys want to hear more of these? Sure. Fucking, keep fucking limerick unabomber. Let me put it in your pooper, I pled, but she would not let me take her to bed. When she opens her mail, my bomb will not fail. I fear she may lose half her head. I mean, so he's kind of, you know, telegraphing <laughs> wow. his intentions. If only they point. would have saw that. Yeah. They, if right. they would have done the investigatory research that you did. Right. The limericks were there. It's right there. I mean, it's there. All right. I got one more here. I once had this whore of a boss. <laughs> My salad, this bitch would not toss. <laughs> She'll get a postal surprise, shrapnel right in her eyes. She'll soon have no teeth left to floss. I mean, so that's really getting off the rails. Goddamn, pal. I mean, he's, he's he's going nuts at this point. He's calling it shots. Yeah, he he's is. calling it. He's Babe Ruth in that some bitch. So yeah. Wow. Good for you, Dave. Yeah, yeah. We found those. We're not going to post them though. For you know. Well, there's copyright. Yeah, stuff we can't here. post this that. Is, uh, so my secret HR contact yeah. at this company. But of course. When you do a little digging, that's what you find sometimes. Just takes a little bit of yeah, effort. Yeah, a little I, bit of effort. I also read that this was Ted's first kiss. When he was like thirty-six years old. Oh, is that real? Yeah, yeah, I read that. Uh, <laughs> Ian's like, what, are we, are "You working me right now, or what?" <laughs> yeah. So they said this it was a worker or shoot. No, it was an interview with the lady. I forget where I saw this, but yeah, she said it, she thought it was Ted's first kiss, and he started doing something weird, like with her tongue or with his tongue or something. So, yeah, dude, there's only so much you could do with the tongue. And Off the, kiss. the rails. Like, is he like licking her nostril or something? No, he wanted to eat her ass, like he said in the limer. And she <laughs> well, just wasn't going for it. So his first kiss was like, I'm going to kiss your your yeah. your asshole? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right, Pally. Good for you. Brown-eyed girl, you know. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> we'll be right back. Is there something interfering with your happiness? Something keeping you from achieving your 2020 goals? Let's face it. These are certainly trying times. From being cooped up inside your home to wondering how you're going to pay next month's bills, we're all experiencing some form of stress or strain on our mental health. And for that, BetterHelp is here for us. BetterHelp is an online mental health provider that will assess your needs and match you up with your own licensed professional therapist. The best part? No waiting rooms. That's a pretty big deal if you're as impatient as I am. BetterHelp is a safe and private online environment that will have you communicating with a counselor within the first 24 hours. And once you've begun, you can send your counselor a message at any time, always getting a helpful response in a timely manner. You even have the ability to schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all from the comfort of your very own couch. BetterHelp is available worldwide and has a broad range of expertise available, including licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflict, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're currently recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Not happy with your counselor? No worries. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches and makes it easy and free to change counselors if needed. Remember, Everything you share with your BetterHelp counselor is completely confidential. And while it's not a crisis line, it is a convenient, professional, and affordable way to seek the help you deserve. Financial aid is even offered to those who qualify. Want to hear how BetterHelp assisted people just like you? Check out the testimonials posted daily on their site. 
Look, we here at Necronomapod want you to start living a happier life. So as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com necro. Join over 1 million people already taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, better H-E-L-P.com slash necro. Today's episode of Necronomapod is brought to you by Beardology. There are a lot of imitators out there, but there's only one place I buy my beard oil. Beardology Beard Oil nourishes your skin and won't leave you with that greasy feel. With over 17 cents available in their extensive product line, I trust my beard to Beardology. You can find Beardology at beardology.co. Use code NECRO15 to receive 15% off your purchase. Beardology, discover the best way to avoid the shave. The initial 1978 bombing was followed by bombs sent to airline officials. And in 1979, a bomb was placed in the cargo hold of American Airlines Flight 444, a Boeing 727 flying from Chicago to Washington, D.C. A faulting timing mechanism prevented the bomb from exploding, but it released smoke, which forced an emergency landing. Authorities said it had enough power to, quote, obliterate the plane had it exploded. As bombing an airliner is a federal crime, the FBI became involved, designating the case Unibomb for University and Airline Bomber. All right, so that's where it came from. Look, I was almost a mass murderer here. That would have taken this to a different level. Taking a plane yeah, down. Yeah, man. This is a different story, though. Interesting. On June 10th, 1981, Percy Wood, president of United Airlines, suffered severe cuts and burns over most of his body and face when he opened a bomb disguised as a book mailed to him at his suburban Chicago home. For the first time, the bomber carved the mysterious letters FC into a component of the bomb. What does that mean? Do we know? Uh, Freedom Club. Uh, Later on, we'll find out. Okay. Fuck yeah, freedom, bro. Freedom. There was a time when they thought there was more than one person possibly involved Mm. because of that, because he led to, you know, a club would, you know, made them think there was more than one person. Isn't FC now like football club? Sure. Isn't that what that means? They love that shit, man. They get into it. They love it over there. If they ever let Americans back over there, I'd like to go to a football match. I could do the drinking. I don't know if I could do like the fisticuffs and the riots. Fucking soccer, hool- fucking yeah. soccer hooligans. Have you seen that? Awesome. Isn't that what's that movie? Hooligans. Green Street Hooligans. Green Street. That's insane. That it's, is an insane movie. If you guys have never seen Green Street Hooligans, fucking fantastic movie. But it also it just pisses me off because I'm like, why the fuck do you do this? So like good. you just meet up and fight. It's so good. And, like come on. A great movie. It's a good movie. It's oh, just it's crazy. Fantastic. Like it's crazy. Ian, literally, it's about soccer fans who meet up, like from rival organizations, and they just fight in the streets and go drink pints in the. In the well, if you live, their home club. If you live, bar. yeah, <laughs> you survive, and then you go drink. Yeah, you fight. You go. You go to the F, the soccer, the football match. You go to your pub, and, and then you, you go, go fight. It's great. We need more pubs here in America. <laughs> That's the problem pubs. with America. We need pubs. That's one of them. One of the many. If if Mike if Mike Namapod becomes president, I'm done with bars. You can only be a pub, or you can't serve alcohol. Fish and chips, yeah. Malt vinegar for my fish and chips, and lots of uh, English ale. Dark lighting, like everything shady looking, kind of, but it's always fun inside. There's no fights, yeah, dude. Like you handle your problems outside, away. Love it. It's the best. All right, Ian, continue. The English pubs (laughs) and the French pubs I've been to, best times of my life. Fantastic. So before I start here, we're just gonna we're just gonna be going through bombs here because he just kind of goes on this pace. 
So we'll drop bombs, but we keep on forgetting what he wrote down. The whole crowd wrote so loud. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Sorry. It's pretty good, man. On October 8th, 1981, a bomb was placed in a business classroom at University of Utah and was disarmed by the police. So placed? Is that implying that he placed it personally? Yes. Is this where they got the iconic uh, police sketch of uh, the Unabomber that everyone knows and loves? One of the computer store bombings okay. with the surveillance camera. It was I. Th- I don't want to say surveillance camera. I think there was an eyewitness that saw him do that at yeah. the computer store. Okay. On May fifth, nineteen eighty-two, a secretary at Vanderbilt University was injured when she opened a package addressed to a professor. She had severe burns to her hands and shrapnel wounds to her body. July second, nineteen eighty-two, a University of California professor of electrical engineering and computer sciences was injured when he picked up a bomb left in the lounge and disguised as a measuring instrument. He was severely burned and suffered shrapnel wounds to his hands and face. Mm. And these shrapnel things, I believe we will bring it up later, but he like put like bits of wood and stuff in there. Um, There's some, you know, metal fragments too. Yeah. It's really stuff that would just tear somebody up. It's brutal. Didn't he also blow up a cheese factory at this time? Because I heard debris was everywhere. God, <laughs> God. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I like when you ask those questions and I start thinking in my head, I'm like, wait, what did he did he really do something like that? <laughs> Wait, Andy, you leave one out here? (laughs) (laughs) Then for nearly three years, the bombing stopped. In a later letter that Ted wrote, he said that he had been spending that time learning to build more powerful devices. Well, time well spent, I guess, right? On May 15th, 1985, a University of California graduate student was injured when he lifted up a bomb designed as a three-ring binder left in the student computer room. He lost four fingers, had a severed artery in his right arm, and partial loss of vision in his left eye. A, a three-ring binder. Fuck. Imagine that. <sighs> like, just a fucking binder sitting mm. in, you know, any schoolroom. That's crazy. And that's, what, yeah, and that's what I mean. He's not, he's targeting establishments. He's not targeting specific people. Because what did that, you know, what did that student do? Nothing. Sure. You know, it, it was just, just up there for anybody yeah, to pick up. The institution. As a whole, right. yeah, as an entity. On June 13th, 1985, a bomb was mailed on May 8th to the Boeing Aircraft Fabrication Division. This one was discovered and disarmed. Hmm. I heard it was a blast to work there at Boeing. Oh, God, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I had another joke, but I didn't want it to blow up in my face. <laughs> they said about me in college <laughs> your eight second titty fucking boom <laughs> Shh, that's patreon content <laughs> patreon.com slash necronomapod <laughs> can you hear that full story it's uh, not November. much it's not really a long story so sorry okay. go ahead <laughs> that was the only episode we ever did without ian also if you want to hear mike and dave that's true unsupervised <laughs> for an hour and a half with ed from pod van dam like you take the three most irresponsible drunk <laughs> podcasters, put them in a room together. Here's what happens. Patreon.com slash Necronomapod yeah, to find podcast out. Podcast gold. Yeah. 
On November 15, 1985, a bomb concealed in a manuscript exploded and seriously injured an assistant to a University of Michigan psychology professor and a research assistant. One suffered temporary hearing loss and the other burns and shrapnel wounds. So he's just making bombs that are in a fucking manuscript now. It just looks like a, it's not a book. Yeah, yeah, right. On December 11th, 1985, the first victim was killed. Hugh Scrutton, a 38-year-old Sacramento, California computer store owner, was killed by a nail and splinter loaded bomb Ugh. placed in the parking lot of his store. A similar attack against a computer store occurred in Salt Lake City, Utah on February 20th, 1987. The bomb, which was disguised as a piece of lumber, injured Gary Wright when he attempted to remove it from the store's parking lot. The explosion severed nerves in Wright's left arm and propelled more than 200 pieces of shrapnel into his body. God damn. So that three years off, he really, you know. He honed in. He, yeah, he, 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 he did step it up. Yeah. In 1993, after a six-year break, Ted mailed a bomb to David Glertner, a computer science professor at Yale University. Although he was critically injured, Glertner did recover. In the same weekend, Ted mailed a bomb to the home of Charles Epstein from the University of California, San Francisco, who lost several fingers upon opening it. Ted then called Glettner's brother, Joel Glettner, a behavioral geneticist, and told him, quote, you're next. Fuck. I remember when this mm. started up back in 93. Uh, I don't. Well, of course not. On December 10th, 1994, Burson Marsteller, executive Thomas J. Mosser, was killed by a mail bomb sent to his home in North Caldwell, New Jersey. In a letter to the New York Times, Ted said he, quote, blew up Thomas Mosser because Burston Marsteller helped Exxon clean up its public image after the Exxon Valdez incident, and more importantly because, quote, it's business in the development of techniques for manipulating people's attitudes. It's awfully vague. Again, yeah, like they've said earlier, like, okay. Yeah, but also fuck uh, Exxon after the well after, after that oil spill, so. He's going after him. There you go, Dave. Oh, I'm not. Are you saying, no, are you an apologist? No, are you an apologist? No, no, no. Oh, well, no, well. That's not what I said. <laughs> I think Dave's an apologist I for Ted I just said, Kaczynski. fuck Exxon after the oil spill. Mm. The drunk captain driving around in Alaska. And, you know. Ian, didn't you say there might have been alibis? There was questions of alibis to Ted Kaczynski? Accomplices? Or yes. alibis, to still. <laughs> I think oh, you're suggesting I was an accomplice. I just think you might have helped him with it as well. <laughs> just saying, person of interest. We'll label him as a per Dave as a person gonna, of interest. I'm gonna cut Mike's mic now. <laughs> <laughs> this was followed by another fatal bombing on April 24th, 1995, with the murder of Gilbert Brent Murray, president of the Timber Industry Lobbying Group, California Forestry Association, by a mail bomb addressed to previous president William Dennison, who had retired. So that's just a some shitty luck there yeah, that is. that guy took over the job and right. got himself blown up. Like we talked about earlier, Ted left false clues in every bomb, which he made hard to find to make them believable. We said that the first one was the initials FC hidden somewhere, and he would usually hide these in the pipe end cap in every bomb. Another clue included a note left in a bomb that did not detonate. It read, quote, Woo, it works. I told you, RV. And Woo is spelled W-U. Another clue was the Eugene O'Neill $1 stamps used to send his boxes. 
He sent one bomb embedded in a copy of Sloan Wilson's novel Ice Brothers. And based on all this stuff, the FBI theorized that Ted had a theme of nature, trees, and wood in his crimes. He often included bits of tree branch and bark in his bombs. And crime writer Robert Graysmith noted that his, quote, obsession with wood was a large factor. My girlfriend in college had an obsession with wood. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a large factor. Is that right? Oh. It wasn't a sapling? <laughs> oh, no, it was not, Pally. It's a redwood? Timber! That's what I used to say as I came inside of her. <laughs> On her face and boobs and back. Whatever part I pleased. Wow. Sometimes she'd get angry and she'd put it back at me and then I'd have to take it, but, you know. It's college. Time for experimentation. <laughs> Some toxic masculinity you're displaying Ooh. over there tonight. Well, I just said she put it back at me, so I'm just also <laughs> saying. I had it shoved back in my face as well. I need to stop drinking so much before these, alcohol, uh, these shows. <laughs> Goddamn. Jesus. <laughs> Moving on. In 1995, Ted mailed several letters to media outlets outlining his goals and demanding that his 35,000-word essay... The Industrial Society and Its Future, be printed verbatim by a major newspaper. He stated that if this demand was met, he would, quote, desist from terrorism. There was controversy as to whether the essay should be published, but Attorney General Janet Reno and FBI Director Louis Free recommended its publication out of concern for public safety and in hope that a reader could identify the author. Bob Guccione from Penthouse volunteered to publish it, but Ted replied that Penthouse was, quote, less respectable than other publications. You put it right between the Penthouse letters. Yeah, I was getting <laughs> gangbanged by five guys, and then you put the manifesto in there. It's a good segue. He said he would, quote, reserve the right to plant one and only one bomb intended to kill after our manuscript has been published. So Genny's using, he's using R instead of mine, you know, like leading mm -hmm. to the... Freedom Club. Know. Yeah. He's saving one for himself. He's like, all right, we can work this out, but I'm going to reserve one more bomb for myself. It's interesting. So ultimately, it was the Washington Post who published the essay on September 19th, 1995. All right, so Mike will now read the entire manuscript. Ian and I are going to go get some dinner. We'll be back in like an hour and a half, and we'll see how it's going. So, Four uh, score and seven years ago... <laughs> I stuck my dick in a cantaloupe. <laughs> hey, you guys want to give me a live mic? I'll just keep, I'll keep riffing. All right. <laughs> industrial society and its future began with Ted's assertion, quote, the industrial revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. He wrote that technology has a destabilizing effect on society, has made life unfulfilling, and has caused widespread psychological suffering. He argued that most people spend their time engaging in useless pursuits because of technological advances. He calls these, quote, surrogate activities wherein people strive towards artificial goals, including scientific work, consumption of entertainment, and following sports teams. Can I just say that I've been waiting for this point of technology in history for my entire life, where I can download and watch any movie that's ever been made. I can read any book that's ever been written in the history of the world. DoorDash will bring me any bring you food a plate, item a Thai food to my door. As you sit on your, your that throne. I want. It's the greatest thing in the history of the world. It and, also and is a I terrible thing. Love it. It's also terrible. It's he's not, not terrible. He's not that wrong. 
I mean, they, he talks about how technology will consume your life and it does like it has more power over us. I have no problem with it. Maybe (laughs) so. I've waited for this moment my entire life. You want to be access to everything and anything I want. But I mean, look at the, look at the problems it causes though. I mean, we're having elections being tampered with possibly we're having, you know, social media affected. Like, I think this was his fear. Well, that's a problem with stupid people. But. Social media and technology <laughs> that's a problem starts with stupidity in this affecting context. people. I have access to everything but I think technology in the entire also, history of the world Technology also makes, fingertips. makes you stupider. I mean, it does. Well, people think they're experts and that they're because they you know, read a Wikipedia page or something. So, I mean, techno- what I'm saying is technology has contributed to the the... Dumbing down. Well, dumb people have always been dumb. It's just another avenue for them. But it makes it easier. It makes it easier. Uh, It makes it more. I I agree with that. Sure. I'm just saying that way for everything. I'm just saying I don't think he's wrong in his views. The way he went about handling it, I think was wrong. I I don't think he's wrong up to this point in what he thinks. I love technology. Technology is great. And we are at the pinnacle but of we are at human the, development we are right at now, the pity, I love it. We are at the pity of technology. I can watch any movie in the world, and Dairy Queen via DoorDash will bring a blizzard to my front door right. any time of day. Let me clarify. <laughs> I think what he is saying... Oh, I know what you're saying, motherfucker. I agree, I agree with what he's saying in the sense of we kind of become slaves to technology. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but it... In many ways is. It's an interesting discussion to have. So he is right in a lot of what his thought is. Have you read the manifesto, all 35,000 words? Of course I have. I read everything that we have to do with any topic we ever cover. I'm a master of everything we've ever (laughs) subject. Every subject we've ever covered, I'm a master of. But, you know, people like we're slaves to our phones. Is that a good thing? I don't know. There's po- positives to it. I don't know. He was just like, he wanted to just be in the environment. He wanted to live off his own hands and his own means. It's fine. Nothing's present, preventing him from doing that. And I don't yeah. think he's wrong. I mean, he's smarter than us. Look, when I was a boy, I played fucking Pong back and forth. Ding, ding, <laughs> ding. Still technology. This world probably. is fucking amazing. Kaczynski would have built his own Pong. He'd have built his own Pong. <laughs> the world is absolutely amazing, and I yeah. love it. Well, it's also a shitty world. Too. I mean, let's be honest. It's a terrible world. I don't leave my couch though, and I can do whatever I want. Sure. Well, he wished he could have that (laughs) and just, but not have the technology bring it to him. The point is, I don't think you should be sending bombs. But I understand what he's saying. I think I I understand what he's saying that like we are slaves to technology. No, we're kind of slaves to technology. I sure we're getting we're going into a deeper conversation. I think it's okay. We'll save that maybe for a bonus. Maybe we'll I'll write this down for a bonus. Do it. Right. Take a note right now. Okay. Writing it right now. <laughs> okay. It's down. Go ahead. Well, it never was that group of um, like a think tank kind of thing from like when the internet was first getting rolling. Yeah. Um, no, it's called Shark and- Tank. It's on MSNBC. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, they put this together. I love and Shark they were tank. saying how um, like this was going to be such a big thing for for people, you know, and it was going to expand everything and it was going to be this, this great thing. And then they got together a while after the internet was around and they're like, yeah, we were, we were kind of wrong on that. The general population isn't ready for, for that amount of information at their (laughs) fingertips and stuff. 
Because I mean, the I, internet's I completely gone off the fucking rails. I don't disagree I don't, with that either. Look, but most people are fucking idiots. So that's never going to change. So but I, that's not the right. argument. That I mean, he's just making in general. I mean, from what we know, I guess, we haven't read his manifesto, that technology is bad. I under, all I'm saying is I understand his point. We are kind of slaves to technology. Technology runs us. Sure. That's so is, is that good or bad? It's fantastic. Well, but you're sitting on your couch getting <laughs> Thai food delivered to you. I love it. It's while you finger your belly button and watch a horror movie. Like, it's just, it is what it is. I understand that. But at what point does it take us over? I don't care. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> He'll take a robot giving him a hand job. I, it's advancement, man. I'm not saying I disagree. All right. I'm just saying I understand what he's saying. Eh. Guy's a loon. Well, Fuck him. But where did that? Okay, we'll get that at the end, <laughs> though. Him. He also was one of the smartest people, you know, of this time. He's too smart. Is he too smart, or did MK Ultra get to him? I don't know. We'll never anyways, know. Why. Anyways, maybe Ian. the end of the story we'll know. All right. Okay, we'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs> he predicted that future technological advances would lead to extensive human genetic engineering that human beings will be adjusted to meet the needs of the social systems rather than vice versa. He believed that technological progress can be stopped, unlike people who understand technology's negative effects yet passively accept it as inevitable. He called for a return to, quote, wild nature. Oh, yeah, that sounds fun. Well, this is where he loses. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Let's go back to the Middle Ages. That'd be fucking great. His whole thing, like, summed up, when you read it summed up like what we're getting through my feeling is like all right asshole go live in the fucking woods why Mm -hmm. you gotta what's the point in bombing a bunch of people like get the fuck out of here and go do what you want to do nobody's gonna bother you right ted argued that the erosion of human freedom is a natural product of an industrial society because quote the system has to regulate human behavior closely in order to function and that reform of the system is impossible because, quote, changes are large enough to make a lasting difference in favor of freedom would not be initiated because it would be realized that they would gravely disrupt the system. However, he states that the system has not yet fully achieved, quote, control over human behavior and is currently engaged in a desperate struggle to overcome certain problems that threaten its survival. He predicted that, quote, if the system succeeds in acquiring sufficient control over human behavior quickly enough, it will probably survive. Otherwise, it will break down and that the issue will most likely be resolved within the next several decades, say 40 to 100 years. Okay. After the FBI labeled the investigation Unibomb in 1979, Chief Agent John Douglas, working with the agents in the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit, issued a psychological profile of the bomber. That's our guy, John Douglas. Is that our super mind cop hunter. guy? Or No, no. That's it's our mind cop. hunter guy. Mind hunter guy. Who's the super copy in? Ray Biondi from Ray Biondi. Richard Chase. I fucking love Ray Biondi. I always forget about him. <laughs> He's on my neck room, I think, Mount Rushmore. Okay. John Douglas. All right. Criminal Minds, or whatever you guys said. Mind hunters. That, that thing. <laughs> <laughs> they look after bad guys. Got it. Mike started drinking early tonight, guys. We all did. <laughs> it described the offender as a man with above average intelligence and connections to academia. This profile was later refined to characterize the offender as a neo luddite holding an academic degree, holding an academic degree in hard sciences, 
but this psychologically based profile was disregarded in 1983. Uh, Douglas on point as always. Yep. Fucking nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> An alternative theory was developed by FBI analysis that concentrated on the physical evidence in recovered bomb fragments. In a rival profile, the suspect was characterized as a blue-collar airplane mechanic. So, yeah, no. John Douglas had it right. Yep. The rest of the FBI fucked up. Of course. That up. <laughs> Fucking question Don, John Douglas. Ridiculous. A 1-800 hotline was set up by the Unibomb Task Force to take calls related to the investigation with a $1 million reward for anyone who could provide information leading to the Unabomber's capture. Before the publication of the manifesto, Ted's brother David was encouraged by his wife to follow up on suspicions that Ted was the Unabomber. Yeah, I already had an inkling here. Yeah, he was he was seeing these letters that were or these things that were written to the media as yep. this was going on. He's like that really sounds like yeah, my brother. I know that fucking weirdo. <laughs> yeah, right. But he was encouraged by his wife, though. So you think he was going to keep it quiet, maybe? Like, he didn't want to ruffle any feathers? Well, does he want the million dollars? Well, I, that's what I'm asking. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. Like, he he's thinking maybe. A lot so of... he's probably saying to her, this sounds like my brother. Like, yeah, this might be yeah. my brother. And she's like, motherfucker, yeah. turn him in. Million dollars, bitch. His thing, his, from what I read, his brother's thing was he didn't want to jump the gun on it and it not be Ted. Yeah, sure. But he knew, but did you I'm think sure. you think so? Like early on though, this kind of stuff is not, I don't know. Well, we'll see. Let's see. I'm going to hold my judgment. All right. After the manifesto was published, the FBI received over a thousand calls a day for months in response to the $1 million offer for information. Many letters claiming to be from the Unabomber were sent to the Unabomb Task Force, and thousands of suspect leads were reviewed. While the FBI was occupied with new leads, Ted's brother David hired a private investigator, Susan Swanson, in Chicago to investigate Ted's activities discreetly. David later hired Washington, D.C. attorney Tony Bisegli to organize the evidence acquired by Swanson and make contact with the FBI given the presumed difficulty of attracting the FBI's attention. David wanted to protect his brother from the danger of an FBI raid, such as the Ruby Ridge incident or the Waco siege, since he feared a violent outcome from any attempt by the FBI to contact his brother. So he fully thought that Ted would go down in a blaze, and he did not want that to happen. I get it. It's understandable. In early 1996, former FBI hostage negotiator and criminal profiler Clinton R. Van Zant was contacted by an investigator working with Bisegli. Bisegli asked Van Zant to compare the manifesto to typewritten copies of, ha of handwritten letters David had received from his brother. Because that's the other thing, too, is Ted would send his brother these rambling-ass letters so when he saw the the man, especially when he saw the manifesto, he's like, "Yeah, that's my brother." Yeah, that looks familiar. He, I've heard that. Yeah. I've read that somewhere before. Yeah, <laughs> I recognize that psychopath. Van Zant's initial analysis determined that there was a better than sixty percent chance that the same person had written the manifesto, which had been in public circulation for half of a year at this point. Van Zant's second ana analytical team determined that an even high, that it was even a higher likelihood. He recommended that Besegli's client immediately contact the FBI. In February 1996, Besegli gave a copy of the 1971 essay written by Ted to Molly Flynn at the FBI. 
She forwarded the essay to the San Francisco-based task force. FBI profiler James Fitzgerald recognized similarities in the writing using linguistic analysis and determined that the author of the essays and the manifesto were almost certainly the same. Combined with facts learned from the bombings in Ted's life, the analysis provided the the basis for a search warrant. Ted's brother David had tried to remain anonymous, but he was soon identified, and within a few days, an FBI agent team was dispatched to interview David and his wife with their attorney in Washington, D.C. At this and subsequent meetings, David provided letters written by his brother in their original envelopes, allowing the FBI task force to use those postmarked dates to add more detail to their timeline of Ted's activities. I mean, when we go back to you know, his dissertation where 10 or 12 people would have understood you know, what he was talking about in the country... I'm sure it's the same with these writings. Like, you know, it's easy to tie it back because, of course, yeah. it's the same fucking person writing it because right. no one right. writes like this. Right. Yeah. There's, again, there's a few people. That, yeah. Right. There's 10 people that write like this in the country. Yeah. I, I wonder if my it's my brother living in a fucking yeah. waterless electric, you know, no electric cabin in Idaho. Or <laughs> 10 people that, that don't of have electricity yeah. that know all this math yeah, and have never right. found a clit. Like, of it's the same it's people. The- <laughs> it's the same clit. 10 people. Like, these fucking losers out there that just don't know what they're doing. Oh, boy. David developed a respectful relationship with the FBI, and he met with behavioral analysis special agent Kathleen Puckett. Multiple Puckett, times I barely know it. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. In Washington, D.C. Wow, that one really got Ian. <laughs> you really got him with that one. You love that It's just one. off the cuff. Sorry, I, po- I apologize. It's very disrespectful. Wow. Puckett, we'll do it live. Sorry. <laughs> Puckett thing sucks. <laughs> Washington, D.C., Texas, Chicago, and New York over... Not Schenectady? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what the fuck that is. (laughs) Over the nearly two months before the federal search warrant was served on Ted's cabin, David had received assurances from the FBI that he would remain anonymous and that his brother would not learn who had turned him in, but his identity was leaked to CBS News in early April 1996. CBS anchorman Dan Rather called FBI Director Louis Free, who requested 24 hours before CBS broke the story on the evening news. The FBI scrambled to finish the search warrant and have it issued by a federal judge in Montana. Afterwards, an internal leak investigation was conducted by the FBI, but the source of the leak was never identified. That's some bullshit, you know? Yeah. Like, if that was you, would you have done it anonymously? Turn in your brother? I don't know. If I knew That's he was the one call. behind I it. Know. I feel like I might have what I might have yeah. done anonymously. Like, you don't want him to find out. Like, yeah. you want to put a stop to this, but. Right. Like, so you're inter- doing the right thing. Like, you're turning yeah, them in and you're right. giving them information. But the FBI with their fucking leaks. Well, come on. All the government. Like, it's not any agency, I feel like. That's some bullshit. FBI agents arrested Ted on April 3rd, 1996 at his cabin where he was found in a really unkept state. Yeah, he looked pretty rough when they got him. Yeah, dude. (laughs) And that was the photo we we posted today. (laughs) It was his mug shot for this episode. So I need a shower. He wasn't wasn't a bad looking dude like earlier on. And then he just let himself go. Yeah. 
Well, when you have no electricity or running water right. for how many years? Yeah. Sure. Take me cabbing for, ca- or cabbing, camping for one weekend, and I look the same way. I'm so disheveled, <laughs> and I've given up on life. I've soiled myself because I don't know what to do. Anyways, Ian, finish your story. You were saying. <laughs> a search of his cabin revealed a, a cache of bomb components, 40,000 handwritten journal pages that included bomb-making experiments, descriptions of Unabomber crimes, and one live bomb ready for mailing. Fuck. They also found what appeared to be the original typed manuscript of his manifesto. By this point, the Unabomber had been the target of the most expensive investigation in FBI history. I remember this, man. When it was going on, it was was a big deal. My memory of the Unabomber stuff is from Unsolved Mysteries. Okay. As a kid. As a kid. After his capture, theories emerging, theories emerged naming Ted as the Zodiac Killer. Among the links that raised suspicion was the fact that Ted lived in the San Francisco Bay Area from 1967 to 1969, which is the same period that most of the Zodiac's confirmed killings occurred in California. Uh, both individuals were highly intelligent with an interest in bombs and ciphers and that both wrote letters to newspapers demanding the publication of their works with a threat of continued violence if the demand was not met. And that's one thing that the FBI found when they when Ted was arrested, that he had come up with a cipher that was like, if you didn't have the key, it was almost impossible to crack. Well, because he's smarter than every other fucking person on the planet. <laughs> right. So if he like comes they, up with one, you're not cracking it. Yeah, they, they, he had, they found the key in his cabin. Yeah. But they were said, like, if we didn't have that key, no one would have ever figured sure. out this that, cipher. That makes sense. However, Ted's whereabouts could not be verified for all the killings and the gun and knife murders committed by the Zodiac Killer you know, differ from yeah. Ted's M.O. Yeah. So he was not further pursued. And we talked about this in the Zodiac. I mean, it was never disproved, but still. There's not a connection. Yeah, that's not, you know. It's interesting, though. It is interesting. It probably and was you, not you, him, though. You can't necessarily disprove it. There's just not a, not enough evidence to go with it. Well, Mike, I cannot disprove you're running an illegal goat fucking factory in your backyard <laughs> either, but it's not really evidence. Well, I mean, come on. Would that be so bad? <laughs> this fucking guy. <laughs> That's funny. A federal grand jury indicted Ted in April of 1996 on 10 counts of illegally transporting, mailing, and using bombs and three counts of murder. So Ted's we were going lawyer, through this. I'm, I'm sorry, Ian. There were, he killed three people through these bombs? That's what the, the total count was, was three people he killed? Right, yeah. Okay. And he fucked up a whole bunch of other people, like right. lifelong well, he, injuries. Sure, sure. Fingers and was, eyes. Yeah. and yeah. Of course. And, and ruined people's lives, of course. Sure. I just did, I wasn't sure what the actual... Kill count was, I just wanted to clarify, three people. What are you, a sniper? Kill count? Hey. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm not a sniper. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> Ted's lawyers, headed by Montana federal public defenders Michael Donahue and Judy Clark, attempted to enter a, an insanity defense to avoid the death penalty, but Ted rejected this strategy because... I mean, no fucking way is he going to let them say that he's insane. No, no chance. He has a point to make here. That would nullify his whole manifesto. Right. 
On January 8, 1998, he requested to dismiss his lawyers and hire Tony Sarah as his counsel. Sarah had agreed to not use the insanity defense and instead based the defense on Ted's anti-technology views. This request was unsuccessful and Ted subsequently tried to commit suicide by hanging on January 9th. Dr. Sally Johnson, a psychiatrist who examined Ted, concluded that he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia and paranoid personality disorder. Forensic psychiatrist Park Dietz, who we just talked about last week in Dahmer, said that Ted was not psychotic but had schizoid or schizotypal personality disorder. In his 2010 book, Technological Slavery, Ted said that two prison psychologists who visited him frequently for four years told him they saw no indication he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia and the diagnosis was, quote, ridiculous and a, quote, political diagnosis. Wait, so he's self-publishing books from prison? <laughs> yeah. I, oh. I kind of agree with him on that, though. Huh. I mean... Well, I was wondering, how, like, he's legitimately making money off these books, or how does that work? I don't think he can make money mm, off that. The Berkowitz, Sam Law. Sam Law, yeah. Yeah. But I, I kind of agree with him here, because how how is he... There's no way he would be such a high-functioning individual that would go through Harvard and all this stuff if he was a paranoid schizophrenic. Well, and there's no, at least from what we've heard, there's no other evidence of him having, no, you know, some kind of no. schizo issues, you know, right. or whatever it might be. That is so. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you, Ian. That might be a political diagnosis thrown on him. On January 21st, 1998, Ted was declared competent to stand trial, quote, despite the psychiatric diagnosis. As he was fit to stand trial, prosecutors sought the death penalty, but Ted avoided that by pleading guilty to all charges on January 22nd, 1998, and accepting life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. He later tried to withdraw this plea by arguing it was involuntary. Judge Garland Ellis Burrell Jr. denied his request, and the United States Courts of Appeal for the Ninth Circuit upheld that decision. Ted is currently serving eight life sentences without the possibility of parole at ADX Florence, a supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. In 2016, it was reported that early on in his imprisonment, Ted had become good friends with Timothy McVeigh. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> The two of these assholes were made friends <laughs> until McVeigh was executed in 2001, even though Ted described McVeigh as too left-leaning regarding politics. Oh, yeah, big leftist, <laughs> Timothy McVeigh. That sounds about right. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Dave, where can we find Timothy McVeigh? <laughs> in the archives. Under what? Oklahoma City bombing. Part one, two, and did three. we do a three? Did we do three parts on Oklahoma City? I think we did. Oh, sure did. It was very exhaustive. Available in the archives. If you want to hear the entire franchise, go back to Ruby Ridge, part one. We only did part one. Two parts of Waco, three parts of Oklahoma City. It was a long haul. We'll get you through the month of fucking May 2020 at that point. It was good, though. Well, was, we were, uh, we were COVID locked down. We did our research. Well, Ian did research. We got drunk. All right. Moving quickly here. Ian, you got any last thoughts? What do you, what, what's your summary then here of uh, this guy? What do you think? What do you make of him? Without the MK Ultra stuff... If you don't take that into account, my opinion, he sounds like a whiny asshole that decided to just go ahead and take his, I don't know, his personal shit out on people. But the MK Ultra stuff is really interesting. Because he was this guy think, was a genius. I think it is too. I think, yeah. it's, I think it's really interesting that, yeah, 
you're breaking down a genius. And what does that do? You know, what is completely breaking the ego of a genius do? I think it's an interesting angle to explore. Sure. Do you think MK Ultra wanted him to behave this way? And like, if so, what was MK Ultra's gimmick behind having him be so anti-technology and industrial revolution? I don't think there was any gimmick to him necessarily. I think it they just was fucked just him up. This, just changed his path. Just fucked him up. Yeah. yeah, it was just you know he happened to get involved with this study, and I mean, like I said, like we said before, there's no direct tie to MK Ultra with that Henry Murray guy, mm-hmm. but there is a direct tie to MK Ultra and Harvard. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's circumstantial, I mean, but there's there's evidence there. I mean, you're doing a fucking study that is breaking down the ego of people, mm. like men- mentally damaging them. I think there's enough smoke to say that that's an MK Ultra thing going on there. Yeah, I don't disagree. Yeah, I, I, this is a what case it did to him. I don't know. This you is know, a case how much of it influenced this. I you know sure, who knows, sure. but I think it played some part. Of course, I agree with that. It's it's a guy who's so smart. He could have wrote his own ticket. He could have done anything he wanted. And he decided to hurt people. He's probably, you know, the smartest uh, top, what, 50 smartest people in the country? At this time? Without a doubt. Oh, of course. Yeah, I would I would agree. Dave, your final thoughts on this one. You got anything else to add to what we discussed? Uh, just that the Supermax in, in Florence is a tough, a tough, uh, tough place to be where you get, what, an hour? Everything's cement. You, they don't let you see the sky. They don't let you see grass. You think it's too tough for him? No, I'm just I'm just saying it's a it's a tough spot. They let you out of your out of your cell an hour a day, so it's 23 hours a day in your cell. A wasted mind, a wasted mind a ge- for a genius, absolutely. And he gets to see the sky, maybe an hour a day. Yeah, I give you. I looked up some other famous neighbors at that Florence Supermax though. Terry Nichols, our our friend with uh, McVeigh. Of course. Well, they they're all like fucking butt buddies, right? Yeah. Like it's a, their own like yeah. housing association down there. Boston Marathon bomber. Really? Zarnov, Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, Eric Rudolph, the Olympic bomber from Atlanta. So yeah. there's a lot of a lot of famous assholes at the Supermax in Florence. Mm. So he's in good company. That's all. A lot of pieces of shit down there. That's all I got. Okay. We got some shout outs here. Uh, Patreon.com slash Necronomapod. Thank you very much to new patrons Tony Mayo, Laren Maxwell, Sarah McGallagher, Allison Lynn, Megan Linder, April Box, Nicole Noel, Jason Ramey, Nikki Adams, Amanda Kilpatrick, Hannah Merrill, Julian G, Tracy Hinson, Jessica Johnson, Callie Chaffin, Rainey Fleming, Catherine Pedersen, Georgia C. Allen, Chris Vick, Doanne Rays, Dist Boo Dist Boobo, excuse me, Liliana Lopez, Sam B, Rebecca Sheen, Laura, Bobzilla, Sean Wagenbach, Jake Kramschroeder, Kelsey Roberts, welcome back, Lauren Domecki, Josh Kernes, Whitney Marlies, Sherry Beam, Hallie DeMarc, Lucas Medell, Jeffrey Glynis, Tony Troy Biasala, Kiera, Debbie Sullivan, May Reed, and Liz. Thank you very much. Also, a special shout out. Uh, I forgot I owed a patron shout out to Amber Gaga. Thank you very much, Amber, for all your support. We appreciate you. Shout out to Amber Gaga, named after this show for calling Lady Gaga. 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 
hamburger guy. Thank you very much. We appreciate your guys' support. Ian, you got any shout outs for us? For iTunes, I have one for Fitzgerald BB, Apple 1234123. That's the most generic name in the history of generic <laughs> names. Is that, is that Tim Cook listening to our show? <laughs> Apple 1234. Yeah, right. JTE2243, Mugs131, Chastity Brienne, J Green X for Cali, and Electrical Dan the Man. Thank you guys for the awesome reviews. All right. Dave, you got anything else for us? Fuck no. I'm good. Of course not. Because fuck them. That's why. <laughs> All right. We appreciate it. And uh, hey. Later. Well. All right. You guys ready for a cool down beer? Cheers.